CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it is uh, Friday, February 23rd, 2024. Good God, time's ticking, ticking, ticking way into the future. Uh, and here's a headline uh, that I will tie to the conversation we're about to have, sort of. Uh, it's an ongoing local headline, ongoing local story. Talk about it a lot uh, when I'm talking about local politics. Johnson's expensive shot spotter extension. Uh, shot spotter is the technology that someone thought uh, sold to the city of Chicago. Someone, it's always some like salesman in a back room, uh, where in which uh, uh, any. Anything that remotely sounds like a gunshot uh, triggers an alarm and police rush to it. It's a very controversial piece of technology. Uh, it's not clear at all, to put it mildly, if it actually helps uh, catch criminals, prevent crimes, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, but the city of Chicago loves privatizing deals. They love inside contractual deals, folks. And once you have such a deal, it's really hard to get out of such a deal because there's a, just a, you know, you talk about how MAGA's brainwashed. There's just a huge swath of Chicagoans who are completely and utterly brainwashed into believing that anything the private sector does is better than anything the public sector does. Really weird, twisted uh, logic. Uh, and because they don't call the private sector, let's say, like when their house is on fire. Um, anyway, uh, so Mayor Johnson has extended that contract uh, to cover the time up through the Democratic National Convention, even as he's promised uh, many of his supporters that he's going to get rid of the contract uh, because they think it's just an unwise expenditure of money. It doesn't help. and It just uh, promotes bad policing. And it's so obvious uh, that many of the people who uh, are leading the Democratic uh, convention, uh, Biden officials, Democratic officials, uh, movers and shakers in Chicago, subscribe to the notion that anything the private sector does is better than anything the public sector does. So you cannot get rid of this technology, even if it's worthless, before the Democratic National Convention. And Brandon Johnson, bowing to that pressure, uh, is extending the contract while he promises his supporters he's going to get rid of it. Uh, interesting little display of creative footwork uh, from Brandon Johnson. And uh, 
probably have a tie that to some conversation we have at the end of this uh, show with my distinguished guest, who I will now ask to introduce himself. So, distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Thanks, Ben. It is great to be here. I am David Ferris, Associate Professor of Political Science at Roosevelt University right here in Chicago, author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, uh, columnist at Slate and Newsweek, and uh, parent of two children, which is uh, keeping me busy, let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they will keep you busy. Uh, And dear friend of the Ben Jarofsky Show, and the reason I brought up... uh, the spot shotter uh, contract is because it's tied, in my humble opinion, and pretty much everybody else's who follows these things in the city of Chicago to the Democratic National Convention, which, for reasons I'll never understand, uh, the state and the city even begged and pleaded and cajoled uh, uh, President Biden to having here in Chicago. I would much prefer it be somewhere else, anywhere else. I don't care where else uh, other than the city of Chicago, which will be used, uh, David, get ready for this just as like a punching bag by absolutely everyone who's got a grievance against uh, President Biden. And there is a long list of people with grievances against uh, President Biden. Uh, And uh, before the show, we briefly discussed the concept of an open convention. And I'm like, bring me an open convention. (laughs) Nominate anyone. David Ferris is ready to run for president other than Joe Biden. Uh, so that's what made me think of spot shotter. All right, we'll get into all that, but uh, that'll be the dessert after we eat our vegetables. Uh, and um, very intriguing article you wrote for Newsweek or essay you wrote for Newsweek about NATO. Uh, and David Ferris is like a total expert on foreign policy. David, I don't take advantage of this nearly enough because you share my obsession with politics, national politics, and you wrote the textbook, which the Democrats just completely ignore, uh, you know, fighting dirty or uh it's time to fight dirty and um but let's talk nato uh donald trump seems to think i'm going to quote uh uh something that you just recently wrote in the newsweek article and then we'll get into it uh but donald trump thinks that uh, a key to victory is to um bash nato uh and uh this is something you wrote here uh quote it is important to note that neither Trump nor the NATO Secretary General could compel countries to increase their spending, which is dependent on the decisions made by democratically elected leaders across the continent. Distant transactional elites force un- forcing unwelcome policy changes on reluctant citizens is one of the things that the MAGA people are putatively opposed to, except when it suits their interest not to be. But this is all overthinking it anyway. Trump despises NATO, hasn't the foggiest idea how it works, and wouldn't change his tune even if some aide informed him that our European allies are already doing exactly what he asked of them years ago. All right, this is going to require a little background uh, and a little bit of a deep dive uh, into why Trump despises NATO and hasn't the foggiest idea how it works, which leads to this question. How does it work? Once we've explained that, then we'll move on and deal with Trump. But how does NATO work? What's its purpose? Go ahead. Sure. Um, I, you know, look, on the most basic level, NATO NATO is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Okay? It was founded during the Cold War um, as, a, as a mutual security alliance uh, to hold off the Soviets um, for fear that they might just kind of roll their <clears throat> roll their tanks into, into Central and Western Europe um, as uh, during the Cold War. Um, and uh, it has grown uh, over over many years, there's now I believe 31 countries in NATO, 
it obviously started off with much many fewer than that, um, particularly as countries that were in the Soviet orbit um, or in the Soviet Union itself have joined NATO over the years. Um, so the way that it works um, is that it's a it's a collective security arrangement, right? Like so, an attack on one is meant to be an attack on all, right? This is Article Five of the NATO Treaty. It's probably the most important thing in it, um, but it it compels the United States. Like if there is a military attack on Latvia. Um, we are obligated by this treaty organization to come to Latvia's defense. Okay. Um, and uh, that's, you know, on, on its basic level, that's what it is. Okay. Um, and the organization will sometimes set goals uh, for how much uh, country member countries, member states should be spending on their military as a percentage of their GDP. Okay. Um, now, if you think about this statistically, right, um, the United States spending 2% of its GDP on the military which we actually spend more than that, right? But like, let's say that it's 2% for the sake of argument. And Latvia is spending 2% of its mili- of its GDP on, on the military. Very different things, right? They, they produce very different numbers. Right? And the idea of the alliance is that everybody should, should be contributing. Um, nobody is under the illusion uh, that the, like the Czech Republic is going to be contributing in the same amount, like the same percentage um, of the overall the sort of NATO expenditures. Um, there is a, you know, there is a NATO budget, right? There's a NATO headquarters and organization, a secretary general, there are various institutions that help the NATO member states cooperate with one another um, militarily um, and also politically. Um, but um, it's a, it's an alliance of independent states. OK. Um, and NATO as an organization can cajole its members. It can prod its members to spend, you know, to, to hit those targets. Um, but they cannot compel the member states to hit those targets. Right. Um and so there are some states, uh, particularly some wealthy states in Europe, like Germany, um, that have consistently fallen short, still do fall short of those targets. Um, and that is simply a product of the governments that the German people have elected and the decisions that they've made. Um, and, and Trump can rail against that all he wants, but, but that's the reality. And um, so in 2014, um, NATO raised its GDP as a, like, its, its uh, military spending as a, as a percentage of GDP targets to 2% um, because of the Russian invasion of Crimea that happened that year. This was under President Obama. Um, and uh, and the alliance, you know, the, the leadership of the alliance was was trying to kind of raise the alarm across Europe um, that sort of like debates that had been kind of lofty and abstract over the years about what we would do if, if Russia was like kind of taken over by aggressive um, nationalists who, who had a like, irredentist goals to claim lost Soviet territory. Um, those things started to come true and, and really it started in like 2008, right? But it really, it really kicked off into high gear in 2014. Um, and uh, you, if you look at a chart of uh, NATO, you know, you, the, the collective numbers from the whole alliance, right? Military spending as a percentage of GDP started to go up a little bit in 2014. Um, and then it really talk, took off in about 2021. Right? There was a very slight rise under Trump. Um, but the reality is that for all of his bluster and all of his yelling and all of his, his uh, complaining about NATO, he, he did not actually succeed in getting the member states to hit those targets. It was the Russian invasion of Ukraine um, and the election of Joe Biden, somebody who like doesn't hate NATO, um, that was able to convince some of the member states, not all, but some, um, to, raise their, uh, to raise their military spending to increase the readiness of the alliance um, should, should the Russians continue westward, right? Um, and so uh, on a very basic level, uh, the existence of NATO, I think, is keeping a number of independent countries independent right now. Right? 
um, and particularly the Baltic states. These are these are small countries um, in, in northeastern Europe um, that could easily be subjugated by the Russians in a matter of days if the if the Russians decided to do it. Um, and uh, the reason that NATO prevents Russia from doing that is twofold. And then I'll stop. <laughs> Okay. Um, but one, because it's a collective security arrangement, right? Um, for better or for worse, the United States is committed to protecting uh, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, right? all these kind of small democratic countries um, that are very close to Russia and which were part of the USSR. And Putin has said many times <clears throat> that, you know, he said effectively wants to put the Soviet Union back together. Um, so there's the, there's that deterrent, right? It's like, if you attack Latvia, we know that you could conquer Latvia, right? Um, but you then would have to contend with all of NATO and not even Putin is stupid enough to try that, right? Like Vladimir Putin is, 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 a, is not a stupid man. He knows that the full brunt of the NATO alliance brought against his forces, um, which have not even been able to conquer Ukraine, um, would, would, would halt him in his tracks. Like as soon as this started, the second deterrent, um, is, is the willingness of, of other NATO countries to contribute to that collective defense. Okay. Um, so let's say that NATO disappeared, right. And you don't have that article five, you don't have the collective security arrangement. Um, I think still, uh, all you hold everything else equal. Um, I think that some people in Latvia could have some level of confidence, um, that it, if nothing else, other NATO countries, former NATO countries in this case would contribute to their defense and kind of do what we're doing in Ukraine, you know, with everybody that would join us. Okay. Um, and so the danger here, right, is not just about the existence of NATO, um, the way that Trump has undermined NATO since the day that he descended that escalator. Um, it's about um, sort of dismantling it from within, right? Um, and you do that in multiple ways, right? You elect far-right um, populists in, in places like Italy um, and Hungary and, and Poland that, that they're out right now. Okay, that's great. But um, if you put into place through, you know, democratic politics, governments that are hostile to the EU and hostile to NATO, right? Um, you contribute to dismantling or, or, or severely weakening the alliance, right? Which is what's happening. Um, and and that would, like, if the alliance disappears or if you put enough sort of, like, right-wing Putin-aligned populists into power across Europe, um, you can both dismantle NATO and dismantle uh, the willingness of those neighboring countries to come to Latvia's rescue. And I think the long-term play here uh, it's not going to happen overnight, right? Um, but the long-term play here is Putin wants to weaken uh, and or destroy the NATO alliance or shrink it considerably um, and and particularly wants to put into power in the most powerful European NATO countries like Germany, um, political forces that are friendly to him and his project, right? And that's what's going on. Right? That's the background right now. Um, and here you have Trump, this maniac, going out and saying... Um, if we have the clip, right. But, um, he's like, uh, you know, he, you know, what Trump does, he, he, he has like these apocryphal fake conversations that he have with, has with people. And he says, people come to him and they're like, sir. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and he said, I was talking to a the leader of a big European country. This idiot can't even remember the names of any of the countries. Right. Um, <laughs> I was talking to the leader of a very big country, you know, and he was like, sir, would you still come to our aid if Russia invaded us? And, and Trump said, if you don't pay up, you know, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. Yeah. Implications very clear here, Ben, right? Like um, if NATO countries don't pay up, like we're the Sopranos operating a mafia organization, um, then then he'll just like basically abandon them and feed them to Putin's wolves. And um, that's where we are. You know, good times. We're on the precipice of reelecting this guy because uh, Joe Biden couldn't get out of the way. So All I'm right. really excited. Uh, so just 
<laughs> there's a lot to unpack there uh, on that riff. Uh, so, and a lot of it has to do with things that are just completely inconsistent, which we, we've actually had brief conversations about. But let's just deal with this first point. So, to be in NATO, you have to commit 2% of your GMP to um, uh, your military budget. Am I correct in that? Okay. So, well, you don't have to, right? But it's, it's a target. Okay, uh, it's the target. It's the commitment you've made. It's it's a uh, non-binding commitment you've made. All right. Okay. Um, so, uh, sort of like Chicago's attitude toward transparency, a non-binding commitment to something they will never uh, achieve. All right. Um, so, <laughs> so th- just think about this, ladies and gentlemen. A lot of the the right wing right wingers who are uh, taking control of governments uh, throughout the world believe in a strong military. So the, the concept of, and similarly, sort of people on the left spectrum, like say in Germany, don't want to spend money on the military. So it's, it's kind of a strange way uh, to judge a country's dedication to stopping Putin, to linking it to, the amount of money it spends on its military because it could very well use that military to join forces with Putin if they wanted to. Do you follow what I'm saying? So the com- the whole notion of an allowance or a commitment or a, a target amount, uh, which shows your dedication to the concept of NATO, is a farce. Yeah. That's I, how I see it. Your thoughts? Yeah, it, it's, it is, obviously. And it's really important to note here. The way that Trump talks about it, um, is like America runs a club uh, <laughs> that you have to pay like a membership fee to get into, right? Um, because this, this is who he is, right? He, d- he does things transactionally. He's used to, you know, paying for, for lawyers and, and prostitutes and, and bankruptcy claims and things like this, right? He's, he's used to just like throwing money at people to make problems go away, right? And in, in his conception, in his like adult mind, um, America runs like an exclusive gentleman's club that you have to pay ad- an admissions fee to, right? rather than a military alliance, okay? And so it's really important to note that like Slovakia is not paying us for membership in NATO, right? Slovakia is spending its own money to hit a target to be part of an alliance. Now, some of that spending could be buying American military equipment, right? American largesse, right? Like there is, I'm not gonna say there's no quid pro quo here, okay? (laughs) Because there definitely is, right? But fundamentally, like we, we're not like so nobody's writing a check to the United States of America to be a part of NATO, right? They're spending their own money and their own way to meet NATO's spending requirements and its military readiness targets and like all the sort of joint exercises they have to run, which requires a lot of coordination and, and structure and administration, um, so that the alliance is ready if something terrible were to happen um, to any of these member states that that we would need to respond to, right? Um, and so just the way that Trump talks about it is like. Com- completely sophomoric like I, it's like he doesn't it's unbelievable that this guy was president for four years <laughs> uh, like president of the united states of america and like does not understand fundamental things about how nato works um and it's it's not just because he's like lazy and stupid which he is um it's because he's hostile to it you know like donald trump it's they are these are not your grandfather's republicans right like military hawks um, you know, who were invested in fighting the Cold War, you know, for better or for worse, right? Like, these are guys who, um, yes, they have like a militaristic edge to them, um, but they are fundamentally isolationist nationalists. 
um, who admire Putin's Russia, right? Trump's leading propagandist, Tucker Carlson, recently traveled to Russia to do this like fawning uh, interview with, with Vladimir Putin himself. Um, there've been, you know, I should point you to like 15 articles in the right-wing press um, where people express their admiration for how Russian society works, right? Like the hatred of, of, of trans and LGBTQ people, uh, right? The dismantling of democracy, the sort of like you know, the, the, an entire country infused with toxic masculinity, right? Um, so it's, it's not just that they don't want to spend the money, right? It's like they want to, in, in a lot of important ways, I think a lot of the American right has been taken over by people who want to inaugurate a Russian-style dictatorship in the United States and just put a little nice little facade over it so it doesn't look exactly like that. But that's what they want. I mean, they're not even like, they don't really deny it, you know? Well, uh, all right, we're going to get into that in a little bit, but let's go back to the concept of Trump hating NATO at the same time, uh, railing against the NATO members for, quote-unquote, not contributing enough. All right. I believe that uh, that Trump is uh, smarter than you're giving him credit for. Uh, and so, as I see it, the issue isn't whether Trump understands uh, how NATO works. The issue, in my mind, is a political one. How Trump defines NATO to the American public. And Donald Trump is playing into this notion that's very strong among people in the United States, that we collective United States are picking up the tab for all these countries' needs and we're not appreciated enough. This I can remember this going back for years and years, uh, David. And uh, Donald Trump is playing into that notion that you're paying for this. They're not paying for this. So to hell with them. And it doesn't matter if it's inaccurate in terms of how NATO works. Uh, it do- It doesn't matter if it's shows uh, a staggering ignorance of just how the world works in general, it plays well. Uh, And uh, I could give all kinds of local analogies about how people in Chicago are sold a bill of goods on something that doesn't help them, but they play into it anyway. I'm going to avoid that because I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Uh, But I see it as uh, analogous uh, to uh, what, how really slick operators behave here in Chicago. Like, for instance, when they scare us with the notion that the White Sox will leave town, so you better, you know, subsidize the White Sox. So I love your your thoughts on Trump's political instincts uh, and how they may be on target with a good chunk of the electorate. Sure. I, I mean, I, I that's a plausible theory too, right? I think, like, fundamentally, he's tapping into this thing we've talked about, I think, a number of times on the show, which is that Americans uh, tend to have sort of liberal left policy preferences on a lot of things, but more conservative, uh, more conservative philosophy about the world. Right. And so there's a very deeply ingrained, I could show you a bunch of polling data about this um, sense of personal responsibility right, in the United States. Like the idea that the individual is in control of his own destiny. If you compare polls in the United States and Europe, it's just a completely different ballgame with the exception of the UK. Um, there's a there's just a different conception of community and and uh, collective responsibility from one another, right? And so Trump is tapping into this very real uh, current in American political thought and American politics that goes back, you know, prior to the Second World War. Um, it was influenced by the Second World War. I'm watching this show right now called uh, Masters of the Air on on Apple, which is about um, the air campaign over Europe and uh, in the Second World War. And there's I just watched this scene where 
you know, there's this uh, British corporal complaining about how boorish the Americans are who are out there, you know, dying by the scores, bombing Germany. Right. And it's meant to tap into that, that audience sympathy with like, you know, Hitler's not bombing us, man. You know, like we're, we're over here out of the goodness of our hearts trying to save these democracies. Um, and we don't feel appreciated. And I think, I don't think that's ever really changed in, in important respects, right? Like we, um, of course, we spend more than any other individual country on NATO. We spend more than, than the next 15 countries combined on our military. Um, we do, in a very important respect, operate, lead, and manage the organization that protects a number of these small democracies that could not protect themselves on their own. Um, and so there's, yeah, there's a very real sense in, among the American public that's like, especially with, you know, during the Ukraine war, right, we spent billions and billions of dollars um, supporting um the Ukrainian government and, and against uh, this horrific Russian invasion. Um, and so, yeah, the instinct that like, yeah, we should be appreciated for this. Right. I think that is correct. Um, I even think there's something to it, right? Like, like substantively, I understand that, right? Like if Americans are making sacrifices to protect people uh, on another continent <clears throat> from authoritarian aggressors, like, yeah, like you want people to say, thanks. <laughs> like I get that, you know, I do. The problem is that, you know, Trump is not uh, making like a savvy political maneuver to, to try to like arm wrestle people into spending more money on their militaries. But like, I don't think that that's the fundamental goal here. I don't think he cares one way or the other, uh, like how much like, uh, um, you know, Hungary spends on its military or whatever. So he doesn't know and he doesn't care um, because what he's doing is, is something in, in entirely different. Right. Um, and that his like overarching geopolitical goals involve like an alliance of light autocracies of which Russia is a member and Germany is not. Um, and I may be again, you know, wh whether he knows he's doing this, he doesn't know he's doing this. He's stupid. He's not stupid. I don't really know. <laughs> right. <laughs> but like the takeaway at the end of the day is that there, there is an informal alliance between these so like far right populists in the United States uh, and Europe. They go to each other's conferences. They support each other. They, they hype each other up on social media. Um, and they're on the march, man. I mean, like, there's like a fascist in, in control of Italy who's trying to change the, the law so that put her party basically in permanent control of the government. Um, there's a, a, the alternative for Germany. These, uh, these, these far-right fascists are polling 20 25% in Germany right now. Could very well win the next election. Um, and, you know, I, how much they're being directly paid by Putin, I don't really know, right? Um, but certainly there is a, there is a vested interest on Putin's side of putting these people into power because they would, uns if nothing else, they would unsettle the NATO alliance, right? One of these guys just is a one plurality in the elections in the Netherlands, right? They just haven't been able to form a government. It's a long story, right? But like, you know, what he wants to do is cause as much chaos in the internal politics of European countries as he can. That's why he wants Trump to be president because Trump contributes to these dynamics because Trump uh, uh, sympathizes with them because he's one of them in a lot of important respects, right? And so there's no magic wand that anybody can wave that's going to like break NATO up and wipe it off the face of the earth, right? Um, but the more you put people into power across Europe and in the United States who are hostile to some, if not all of NATO's goals, you know, the closer you are to that goal of getting Latvia back, right? And I think that's mm -hmm. what this is all about. Well, uh, it's uh, also a sign that the world has changed dramatically uh, since NATO was first incorporated. Follow me on this. Uh, when you, as you, you, you already uh, indicated, uh, NATO was formed in the aftermath of World War II as a bulwark against Soviet Union and the expansion of communism. Uh, Putin does not represent communism. Uh, he represents 
fascism and nationalism uh, and hatred of people who are different than you. And that's a very popular sentiment in uh, throughout the world, but particularly in the United States. So the concept that you would need an international bulwark against the spread of essentially the Russian version of MAGA is preposterous if you're in the MAGA. You would want the opposite. You would want to uh, fortify Putin. You would want Putin uh, to be the force uh, that is overtaking European countries as opposed to a force that would have to be a bulwark uh, against Putin. And MAGA hasn't come right out and said this directly as a principle, David. They're, They're hinting at it strongly. Uh, and that's why I always say Trump is a, is inconsistent. He's not being forthright here. Like when Trump goes, uh, that the, the line that you uh, already alluded to, uh, which we talked about in the past, where Trump said the thing about, if you're not going to contribute, I'd say the hell with you. Just invade him anyway. Well, <laughs> what is it? You know what I'm saying? Do you want him to contribute? Or do you want, it's like, Ultimately, the punishment for not contributing, him invading you, which isn't that the whole point of them contributing? So it's inconsistent. They have not gotten there. David, I think they're inching toward there. Like, you think about the the Republican National Convention when they nominate Donald Trump, a a speech from the platform saying, go, Putin, go. We're not there yet, but we're almost there. And I feel... That's the last hurdle, if you follow what I'm saying. And that will be a definitive moment for the United States. In your humble opinion, will the United States elect a presidential candidate who openly says, go Putin, go? I mean, I think that they would at this point. You know, I I think that America, like, there's just, I think about a quarter of the country now, it's just like open fascists. You know, maybe they don't call themselves that, but like, that's what they think. Um, you know, they, they admire the use of force. They, they're hostile, contemptuous of liberal democracy. Um, and, uh, and they would like to use the power of the state to punish their enemies and sort of inflict their vision of society on the rest of us. Then you've got the other half of the Republican coalition, right? Which is just like people that like Republicans and want their taxes cut and not necessarily into all this like fascist stuff, but they will vote for the guy anyway. Um, because they don't see the forest for the trees. Um, and so, yeah, any Republican presidential candidate is a credible, you know, is a credible threat to win. Um, as long as that person is Trump, Trump can say whatever he wants. And eventually he will just like snap the rest of the coalition into lockstep um, with, with a handful of Republicans in the Senate being like, boy, this really makes me uncomfortable while they're voting for all of it. And um, so I could see it for sure. I could see I could see. The United States voting for a candidate that said, I think we should withdraw from NATO and dismantle the alliance is not serving our purposes. We're spending billions and billions of dollars protecting people on the other side of the world. We don't want to do that anymore. Good night and good luck. I mean, he's, you know, he's not that far from saying that, right? Um, and um, that's a reality that we have to contend with. I mean, I think like the willingness of American voters to put people like that in power is one of America's primary diplomatic challenges right now. Um, because other countries don't trust us for good reason, because they don't trust that we'll have policy continuity between administrations. Um, and it, it's not like changing our NATO stances outside the realm of democratic politics, right? We elect people who want to leave NATO, we'll leave NATO. There's nothing necessarily illegitimate about that. I just don't think it's good. Um, and I, I don't think people will realize what's gone 
um, when the number of democracies in the world shrinks and shrinks and shrinks, and we're, you know, either we're, we're among the ones that have become autocratic or we're the last ones standing, um, that's not a position that I think we want to be in. Um, and I, you don't have to present it in apocalyptic terms to think like, on balance, right now, uh, I think that the NATO alliance provides a net benefit for the preservation uh, of liberal democracy and for a number of free people uh, of smaller countries in Europe who would be swallowed whole by Russia if we didn't do anything about it. Um, and, the, you know, those are the, those are the stakes. You know, Trump has told us who he is. I, we got to listen to him. Yeah, Trump has uh, told us who he is and we got to listen to him. We have to take him seriously. Absolutely. It's a, a, a fundamental that I, I agree with. Uh, and at the same time, I'm watching the country uh, embracing uh, Trumpism in in the context, let's say, of Putin particularly. And that brings me to Tucker Carlson. Uh, so as you pointed out, Tucker Carlson is one of Trump's leading propagandists. I'd say one of them. He's, he's no longer on national TV, so his uh, influence has diminished somewhat. Uh, but uh, he's still very powerful. Uh, and... Um, perhaps will be Trump's running mate. But there's a thought for you, David. Uh, and um, he, what he did when he went to Russia uh, and quote-unquote interviewed Putin was uh, on one level comic. Uh, uh, it was absurd. It, was, it just violated all the norms of a conventional interview by a journalist, uh, particularly one who prides himself on being hard-hitting. Uh, it was beyond fawning, uh, it it was, wow, it was like a parody of itself. And yet, the themes he were pushing were the ones and the lines what I was just alluding to, and that is, Putin is our ally. This is a man who you agree with more than you disagree with. This is a man who runs a country the way you would want your country run. This is a person we should not be fighting, but we should be embracing. Uh, and then right in the aftermath, lo and behold, um, Putin's leading uh, uh, opponent theater, who you're a figure, or who already locked away in prison, uh, is murdered or is suddenly dead. They haven't really established how. Um, so what was Tucker Carlson up to, in your humble opinion, uh, when he uh, gave that interview and put uh, his propaganda out there to the universe? I mean, he's up to a bunch of different things, right? I mean, fundamentally, there's uh, there's long-term politics, there's short-term politics. One of the things that Tucker Carlson is doing um, is, uh, is trying to undermine American support for Ukraine um, and trying to put pressure on congressional Republicans not to cave into the Biden administration and, and send him a bill with, with, uh, with Ukraine aid in it. Um, and the more that you can sow doubt in the minds of the American people, about who are the good guys here and who are the bad guys here, um, the more that you can launder uh, what what Putin is up to, the nature of autocracy in Russia, um, the nature of the war in Ukraine, the more people might you know uh, start to think to themselves, well, why are we sending so much money to to the Zelensky government? I go, oh, they're run by fascists, so like, why are we doing this anyway? I want to put a stop to it. Um, and so it is all part and parcel of this America First movement. Um, where you know we want to pursue this like sort of interwar vision of isolationism, um, take care of our own problems first, and cut you know cut loose anybody that doesn't pay up. Okay, um, and so there's that there's like the you know the audience is Republican members of Congress, the audience is 
rank-and-file Republicans um, for whom, uh, you know, they, they probably heard a bunch of things about what Ukraine is and what Russia is, but they're not experts. Um, and here you have this voice that they used to trust going and giving a friendly interview to the, to the president of Russia who's engaged in mass murder. Um, so, so there's that, right? There's the short-term political element of it, right? In a longer-term sense, what the right, what, what I think that the right is up to um, there's a, uh, there's a substack that I'd recommend to your readers, a guy named Damon Linker, who writes a, a writes a substack called eyes on the right. Okay. Uh, you might not like everything he has to say <laughs> about, about our politics. Right. But he does a really good job, um, reading these horrendous toxic websites and then telling, telling us what's in them. <laughs> okay. Um, and what I think the long-term maneuver here is, um, to increase public support for democratic backsliding, right? To position countries like Hungary and Russia as our natural allies rather than the liberal democracies of Europe, you know? Um, and the more that you can affect that long-term change where, where one of our two major political parties, the rank and file becomes more sympathetic to dictators than they do to Democrats, um, you know, you're just, you're greasing the wheels for all sorts of things that these people want to achieve, you know? Um, and of course, it's just, I mean, he's also just like shameless promotion, right? <laughs> like, let's not forget the clout chasing aspect of anything that, that Tucker Carlson does. Um, and so all these things can be true at, at the same time. I think they were all, uh, it's all part of what he's doing here. Uh, one of the things he said uh, it was that, and I'm paraphrasing this from memory, I wish I wrote, uh, wrote it down, was that all uh, leaders kill. I don't know if you remember that line. Uh, and th there's an element of Tucker Carlson that appeals to the left, the far left, uh, uh, David, and they'll have they'll come on his show. Uh, and when he said that, I immediately thought back to uh, the killing. This happened, obviously, before my, a lot of my listeners were born, including you, of Fred Hampton while he was sleeping uh, by uh, Chicago police uh, in conjunction with the FBI. Is Cook County State's attorney, probably with Mayor Daly, the old Mayor Daly, uh, giving his approval, uh, definitely his approval after the fact. Um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Like, do you believe there's like a kernel of truth to some of the propaganda Tucker Carlson uh, issued in order to sort of defend Putin? I mean, the kernel of truth is that the United States will sometimes engage in... <laughs> Um, and terrible behavior ourselves, right? Um, I think like one of the one of the things that's argumining uh, that's uh, undermining liberal democracy worldwide, and, and particularly American liberal democracy, and support for it um, is that we are advocating for a rules based international order that we are like again and again explicitly not applying to Israel, um, and that that is I think making everybody a, a hypocrite who's who's talking about like well you can't interview a mass murderer. Right. Um, while we are engaged in alliance with with someone who is ethnically cleansing Gaza, right, and like essentially cleaning two million people um, out of the Gaza Strip um, and sending them into fate that, that is uncertain at the moment, um, that's so it's it's hard to do that, right? It's hard to say like what what Putin is doing is unacceptable, uh, and what Netanyahu is doing is like necessary and great, um, and you you don't have to erase. Do I think it's exactly the same? No, I don't. Right. Um, but um, I think that the United States has stood by at this point for far too long uh, after far too long after it has become clear that Netanyahu does not care 
um, about the lives of Palestinian civilians and is willing to, you know, is willing to kill as many of them as possible um, to get to achieve his war aims. That's not a good look. Right. Like, uh, am I on like team Trump and team Tucker because of it? No, I'm not. Um, i to paraphrase a writer named Rebecca Solnit. And she's like, you know, there are good things that are good and there are bad things that are bad. <laughs> and the fact that there are bad things are bad does not mean that the good things are not good anymore. Okay. Um, the fact that the United States is hypocritical, uh, shamelessly supporting Israel, um, does not mean that there's nothing worth protecting here or that we are as bad as Vladimir Putin is. Um, I, I think that we just have the wrong leadership in the White House right now, um, and they are kind of sleepwalking us into disaster. So, yeah. All right. Uh, that's about as good a uh, point to make a pivot as we have. Uh, and I apologize to listeners because this will be a very truncated conversation, which should be a whole longer conversation. Uh, and uh, David has been uh, pretty consistent down to the months uh, that the Democrats are courting disaster by uh, – maintaining uh, Joe Biden as their nominee. Nobody is listening to him in a position of authority, I might point out. Uh, you have even less influence with the National Dems, uh, David, than I do with the leaders of the city of Chicago. So get used to that feeling of helplessness uh, as I watch the city of Chicago gear up to give the White Sox a billion dollars. <laughs> wow. Uh, anyway, um, uh, the concept of an open convention I find so intriguing. And an open convention, of course, is when the delegates are free uh, to vote for whoever they want uh, at the convention and nominate whoever they want. And if if mean if that means abandoning uh, Joe Biden, so be it. Uh, a centrist, I, can, I don't know what he is, liberal, moderate, whatever Ezra Klein calls himself, progressive, progressives are the new liberals, I guess, uh, has, I don't know, suggested that the Democrats go down this path. Uh, and... Um, so why don't you just uh, take a, a little riff on the con how an open convention would work and why, in your humble opinion, you think it would be good uh, for Democrats? Sure. Um, this is, uh, you know, this is obviously top of mind um, for a lot of people. I think Ezra Klein is a very prominent New York Times writer, podcaster, kind of just like lit a little rhetorical bomb and set it off. And we've all been talking about it for about 10 days now. Um, when he endorsed the concept of, of, you know, of Joe Biden stepping aside and then picking the nominee at the convention rather than because it's really too late for the voters to pick somebody else um, to get somebody else. Like, I'm sorry, you know, sorry, uh, Dean Phillips and Marianne Williamson. It's too late for the voters to go through the regular nominating process to get somebody else in there. Right. Um, and that would mean uh, at the convention, the scenario goes like this. OK, sometime in the next five, four or five months, Joe Biden decides to step aside. He's like, I'm looking at the polls. I can't win. Um, so people get through to him. They're like, look, man, for better or for worse, everybody thinks you're too old. Um, and everybody's like, it was a significant part of our coalition that's so angry at you about Gaza that they won't turn up in Michigan. And he looks at a bunch of polling data and he's like, okay, you're right. Um, and he, he does the Lyndon Johnson speech that he gave in 68. You know, uh, I will not seek, nor will I accept my party's nomination for president. Um, and of course, the nominating process in the convention worked very different in 1968 than it does now precisely because of what happened in 1968, which is that Vice President Hubert Humphrey kind of rolled into the DNC without having competed in any of the existing primaries or caucuses, and the party gave the nomination to him. Um, and it, you, know, you, you know more about this than I do in terms of what actually happened here in 68. Um, but the party put these reforms in place after that to make the, the nominating contests in all 50 states in DC more or less binding, right? Like uh, it, it gave the people the power to pick the nominee rather than 
than party elected officials and insiders at the convention. So to completely do these things completely differently than we did before 1972. Um, and I, I don't, you know, there's a lot of talk about going back to that. I don't think there's any going back to that, right? Um, but uh, in important ways, even the existing rules that gave the power to the people to pick the nominee have these little loopholes in them um, to, to grant um, Democratic Party insiders a little bit more power to pick the nominee should some unforeseen circumstance come up. Okay. One of those unforeseen circumstances could be the person with the most delegates prior to the convention, even a majority, dying or stepping aside, right? Um, if you read the rules of the DNC, um, even the delegates that, that Biden wins are pledged and not bound, if that makes sense. Like there is, a, in theory, even if he doesn't step aside, in theory, his own delegates could rebel against him and, and pick somebody else at the convention. Now that would be that would be a huge mess, right? I think the scenario that everybody envisions as like possibly workable, again, it's June, Biden decides to step aside, right? And then we don't have a nominee. Um, we don't know who's gonna be on the ballot and we have to figure that out. And the way that we figure that out is at the convention and people would do it the old style, right? Like there'd be a lot of jockeying and trying to influence Biden's delegates. now. Biden could recommend somebody. He'd be like, I want my delegates to go to Kamala Harris, but he can't, he can't issue that decision by fiat. Right? Mm -hmm. his, his own delegates would still have to make the decision to vote for Kamala Harris. Um, and I think that Kamala Harris has enough problems inside the Democratic Party that I'm not super confident that she would win. I, not the election. I mean, like, I'm not sure that she would get the nomination at a contested convention. But the concept of a contested convention, a brokered convention or an open convention, this all means the same thing is that you do not have a nominee heading into the convention, right? And that has not happened since 68 for either party. Um, another, like, obviously the convention exists to make that decision final, right? But every year for both parties since 1972, they have headed to the national conventions knowing who had the most delegates. And right, while there may have been some like loose talk about other things happening every single time, the person who had won the primaries became the nominee. Um, and so this would be the first time since 1968 where we head into a convention, not exactly knowing who the nominee would be um, and allowing the delegates who are actual human beings that appear on ballots, um, these actual human beings who have been selected by the voters to be Biden's delegates would then be tasked with picking someone else. Okay. Um, now, I have my own thoughts about who that should be. If this, I think, still unlikely scenario would unfold, although I'm hopeful that it might unfold. Um, you know, my, my person would be Michigan Governor uh, Gretchen Whitmer, uh, who would just take Michigan off the map. Uh, first of all, extremely important state. Um, but I, I think in other ways, she, she has a lot of strengths as a potential candidate uh, to win crossover voters. She's got that Midwest appeal. She's folksy. She's achieved a lot as the governor of Michigan. She brought Democratic majorities into the Senate and the House there. All right, well, that's the end of my pitch for Gretchen Whitmer. OK, it's just, it may not be her, but um, <laughs> fundamentally, right, it's like we wouldn't know the nominee until August. Yeah. Um, and that means the downside of that is like, you know, Trump would have four or five months to, with the stage to himself, essentially, while we jockey amongst ourselves trying to pick the nominee. And yeah. I'm not going to tell you that that's not a downside. That is a downside. Um, but I, I still think at the end of the day that Biden has vulnerabilities right now that are very close to irreparable. Um, and the Democratic Party has procedures in place that would be perfectly legitimate um, to pick someone else at the convention if Biden were to step aside. Yeah. Right. So this well, really depends. I, like, yes, there is a there is a hypothetical scenario in which the delegates could rebel against him, even if he doesn't choose to step aside. I really can't see that happening. But if Biden were to 
uh, were to exit the race, right? That's, this is what would happen. People could run write-in campaigns, and there's still a few states towards the end um, that you could get on the ballot. But I think what would be more likely to happen is that Biden would actually just see this process through and then announce that he's leaving in June right? to give himself the most or maximum amount of leverage over who the actual nominee is. Okay. Um, and uh, so there would be, you know, I, I can think of four or five people right off the top of my head that I think would try to seek the nomination. Uh, there's Harris, there's Whitmer, there's California governor, Gavin Newsom, please God, no. Uh, <laughs> sat on it, right? has these ambitions. Um and, you know, a couple of senators here and there, but like that would be the field. Um, and the process would be like, you know, negotiates is not, it wouldn't all necessarily happen in public. Um, it would be the delegates and the, and the boosters of the candidates and the candidates themselves talking to each other in, in rooms and meeting up over drinks and trying to figure out who's the best candidate. Um, and Ezra Klein made like what I thought was a pretty, you know, pretty compelling case that this actually could be like great theater. Um, all eyes would be on us. Uh, for better or for worse <laughs> right yeah. uh, i'm not part of any organized party i'm a democrat um yeah. and uh so it could go either way right in my mind at this point right with the polls not turning around um with the with the looming threat of a second trump presidency i'm ready to roll the dice on somebody else like i'm i'm ready to absorb the downsides of this process to emerge from that convention with somebody like whitmer um, at the top of the ticket i think we've all collectively forgotten what it is like to have the party leader be under the age of 65 uh, <laughs> capable of inspiring people with their, with their words, you know, yeah. you remember Obama, right? Like, like, like everything else aside, right? Yeah. When he took the stage, people listened. Yeah. When he took the stage, he could inspire people to action. Right. And we haven't had that in so long in so long, right? Like even Bernie is ancient with all due respect. Okay. We haven't had a Democrat making the case for our policies and our party who's like young and vigorous and in the prime of their career in like 10 years. And I think people have forgotten what that actually could be like. And I would be so excited to come out of the DNC with Whitmer at the top of the ticket. Right. Um, and just be like, we're all in, right. This is, this is who we are. You know, Whitmer could walk back some of the Gaza stuff, you know, she wouldn't have the age considerations. Um, and she wouldn't be saddled with some of the Biden baggage, some of which is fair and some of which is not, right? I think in some respects, Biden's been a great president. In other respects, he has not. Um, the reality is like people people don't want him to be president again, right? That's what the polls keep t- telling us over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, yeah. is that people are ready for somebody else. And if that somebody else is Donald Trump, then so be it. Now, I think people are making a catastrophic mistake, but that's what the data is telling us. And I, I believe that data. And I believe there's a process by which we could have an open, open convention and, and still win in November. So that's, well, uh, that is a great riff. Uh, I, uh, uh, I, the, thea- the theater of it would, would be fascinating. You're absolutely correct. Uh, the potential for disaster is uh, also there as well. And uh so, you know, what is, what's that old line? Uh, be careful what you ask for, uh, and uh, you might get it. Uh, that said, I, I want to close with this. Um, Joe Biden's insistence that he is going to run for reelection, I find astounding. And I'd love to hear you riff on this. Um, he could easily claim that he accomplished everything he set out to accomplish and announce he's not running, but no, he's sticking to it. And it, listen, 
Very few people follow politics as closely as you or I do, David, uh, or my listeners. Okay, this is the, the people who listen to you. These are like diehard, dedicated political junkies. Okay, they know as much. They know so much about politics. It kind of blows my mind sometimes. The overwhelming majority of Americans don't know that. Will never know it. Will never dedicate themselves to knowing it. Okay. And so when those people, the overwhelming majority of Americans that look at Joe Biden, they're like, damn, this man's old. This guy's still the president. <laughs> and Biden doesn't see it. What Help me understand this. You know, his insistence that, that he has to get the second term. I'm, what do you think is behind this? It's just stubbornness. Uh, is it resentfulness that he never got to do? He deserved, I don't know. Do, do a little analysis. I know you're not in his brain, but go there and tell me what's in there. Go ahead. Yeah, let me put on my, my flight suit and jump in. Right <laughs> uh, you know, like, this is why, I, I don't know, right? But, like, my my working theory, I don't know if you've ever been part of a family conversation where, where kids got to take keys away from their parents. You know what I mean? It's like, you can't drive anymore, right? You're a danger. And you're not necessarily like senile or, or demented, right? But you're like your 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 instincts have eroded to the point where you are uh, you are a danger to the other people on the road, right? Um, and you may even understand that on a basic level, right? But like your kids coming to you and taking your keys away is like a life milestone that nobody wants. You know, it, it requires you to confront certain realities about mortality and your own existence. Um, and you have you know our brains just create this like cognitive structure that we will produce any kind of evidence to avoid to avoid accepting that verdict, you know? Um, and so I think one thing that's going on here is like, I don't think Biden can accept that his public persona is such that it does not inspire confidence um, on the part of people that are listening. And that's not the fault of New York Times headlines, right? And that's not the fault of Robert Hur. And there are people that are out to get him. And I think there are people that are unfair to him. I don't actually think that he's senile, right? But his, his mannerisms, his way of speaking, um, his ability to think on his feet, uh, these things have all declined dramatically, even in the last five years. Okay. Um, and I think the other thing that's going on here goes back to 2019, 2020, um, when, you know, the Nate Cohn factor here, where we were looking at these polls, um, showing Biden doing one or two points better than Elizabeth Warren or, or Bernie Sanders. And then Biden ultimately wins very narrowly, ultimately, and not in the popular vote, but in the electoral college, it was a very narrow win in 2020. And I think the conclusion that Biden and Biden's allies drew from all of that was that he was literally the only person that could have beaten Trump that year. Okay. And I think in Biden's head, there is both a denial of like the manifestation of his age and how that appears to people. I also think that he truly believes that he's the only Democrat right now with the juice to beat Joe Biden, to beat Donald Trump. And he's like, I did it once. I'm the only person that's ever beaten Donald Trump in an election. And I'm going to do it again. Right. And I think that he thinks of himself as like the essential person in this process. And that if he steps aside, he's courting disaster. Um, and like, I can understand that on a human level, why he thinks that. Uh, but like, I don't think at this point that there's any evidence that that's true because the evidence at this point points to, to Joe Biden losing to Donald Trump. Yeah. You know, not like a Nixon wipeout. Right. But like what we're seeing, the polling, if this actually came true. He would lose. He would lose the popular vote, which Democrats have only done once in the last like eight cycles. And then he would lose the Electoral College decisively. I like I, we keep like every day there's like a fresh set of, of battleground state polls that show Trump leading in all of them. Um, 
and uh, somebody, this was Ezra Klein's point. He's like, somebody has got to get through to him. Um, and I don't know how you do that, right? Like there's no way to, there's really no way to clean up this process unless Biden comes to the realization um, that he's a drag on the party and in, in courting a potential like world altering disaster. Um, and so that would require people in his orbit to also accept and understand that argument. And I'm not sure that that's happened either, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's not great. <laughs> no, it's not great. Well, what we'll be watching, uh, and, uh, the next time you come on the show, we'll be able to talk about it is the upcoming Michigan primary, uh, where there was, there's an uncommitted movement going. People should vote uncommitted. Uh, and it's fueled by all kinds of things. Uh, but to a large degree, it's fueled by opposition, uh, to Biden embracing Netanyahu, uh, which is literally what he did. Literally, he embraced the man, uh, and. Um, there's this dynamic in American politics right now that uh, is very challenging uh, for American foreign policy and political scientists. And David has addressed this, and we're going to be talking about this more in, in coming years. What is the um, policy the United States should have toward Israel? And how does that have to fundamentally change uh, in the coming uh well, if you want to prevent Donald Trump from winning re-election, but also if you want to stop slaughter and you want to have peace, a potential for peace in the Middle East. Uh, and I, so I think any Democratic uh, candidate is going to be dealing with that. But that's kind of on the ticket uh, on the ballot and uh, Tuesday. Uh, so, David, we watch. I'll be watching. I know you will, political junkie that you are, the outcome of Michigan. And that will have a powerful statement, I think. Uh, what you're describing is what the de- – the analogy is the one uh, that everybody uses is when Barry Goldwater and other Republicans came to Richard Nixon in 1974 and said, you have to step down in the middle of the Watergate crisis. And what you're calling for in a in similar thing, David, is Democratic leaders have to go to uh, President Biden and say, uh, sir, you did a great service, but you have to step down now or Donald Trump, the fascists will win. Uh, and I think that's kind of on the ticket on the ballot, if you will, in Michigan. If the results are overwhelming for Biden, then that's a strong, compelling argument that just keep him there. Do you follow me? But yeah, I think um, I, we have a lot to talk about, about this. I think that we should dedicate the next show to this Michigan stuff and this, and the message that's being sent to Biden and, um, and talk a little bit about Gaza inside the democratic coalition. Um, I think there's a lot, there's a lot to break down here. I think it's super important um in the long term and in the context of this election and of course for you know for for israel and palestine so let's do it i'll put it on the calendar put it on the calendar so this is a first ladies and gentlemen in the history of david and ben having conversations which is now in its seventh year i want to say unbelievable uh this conversation has been going on for seven years uh, and uh this is the first time we ever did anything remotely resembling planning uh we like actually <laughs> <laughs> I got a feeling David will write some other column uh, in two weeks and then whoosh, this will go out the window. But no, let's let's try to keep to this. Uh, and and def- there'll be a reason for it, because I know you're going to write about Michigan. So, uh, sure. Sure. yeah, let's take that deep dive. All right, Thank David, I'll let you get back to your day. Uh, Thank you very much. And I'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. All right. All right. Sounds good, Ben. Thanks so much. All right. That's David Ferris. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. 